is it wrong to treat somebody against their will if they're likely to die if you don't? We've discussed it a little bit, patient X and uh, do not resuscitate or do not use naloxone or opiate antagonist of any sort. Again, it's I guess it's, it boils down to capacity and the example that the physician posed or used was uh, anorexia, which is a really strange, um, I mean, yeah, it's classified as a, a mental health disorder, I guess. There's mm-hmm. different forms of it, but uh, it's a body dysmorphia. I mean, people who are suffering from this condition literally see or feel a reality that is different from from what others are witnessing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can't imagine having a loved one who's suffering from this and then having to section them or or having to force food upon them. I and it in some cases it's it's obviously the right thing to do. So here's a case where this is a this has got nothing to do with drug addiction on the surface anyway. You could argue that there's some mechanisms that are that are the same as far as uh, it being a coping mechanism, but really it's a mental health issue. The person is exhibiting signs of not being able to to make a decision that's that's going to be good for their health long term. Therefore, we've made the decision as a society to. Our, our default setting is to intervene. And then I imagine, I guess it, uh, you probably know a lot more about this, Corey, but if the person who's being held or treated against their wishes has been deemed unfit to make that decision, then how does that work with executive control of the situation? Does it go to the spouse, the parent, like who, there's got to be some kind of hierarchy there, I guess. Yeah. If we're talking about in hospital, the physicians are are able to, under the Mental Health Act, assume the role of the decision maker in those cases. Um, But there are also, and I have seen cases of minors where the medical system sort of takes over, but I think they're with, with sort of support and collaboration from the parents. I've seen that as well. What about if the... What if the doctor is trying to keep the patient there in the hospital and is saying the treatment's necessary for that patient to survive, and the parent says, no, I'm taking my kid home? What's the legal situation? Have you seen that before? I have not seen that before. I've not seen that before. That's a great question. I'm, I'd be very curious to know what would happen there. Hmm. This is a really tough one. It is very um, tough, yeah. And, and it's so I, I keep wanting to try to draw the line or sort of make the connection between a behavior like anorexia and a substance use disorder. And I, I don't know that they're in even in that they can be compared fairly or be compared reasonably. I know that there are that behavior of an individual to sort of act in, in a way that puts themselves at immediate risk, though anorexia, it's a, there's more of a continuum there. Like the, the risk is assumed over a period of time versus mm-hmm. in the context of our of our toxic drugs in our society the risk is can be immediate for, yeah. for someone who's using injectable opiates so so it's really tough you know the other thing i it kind of comes back to what we were saying in our last one about like how are we going about this there's a part of me that really thinks that the individual should be kept safe and that that sort of spiral that of 
of this sort of behavior that's gonna gonna only lead one way, lead to their death, that that should be prevented when possible. But what I have observed firsthand in in my career was that we we fall short. I've seen forced forced eating before, mm-hmm. where eat you know eat, and we weigh you to see if you've gained weight, or else you might have to get a a feeding tube put down your nose. And then we will weigh you and we're not going to let you look at the scale kind of a Mm. thing. And so brutal. So what I, such a tough situation it is. So what comes to mind for me too, is like, is a, is that harmful? Is this, is the way that we are approaching this treatment causing some psychological injury to the individual by loss of autonomy, by feeling either abused or feeling powerless in that situation. And then also, are we, getting to the root cause. And I, what I have observed in our current system is that we don't, that mental health in, in our hospitals means psychiatry. It does not mean psychology. (laughs) And there's a, there's a very big distinction there. Mm -hmm. So a psychiatrist who would be involved usually to prescribe a drug or drugs to help manage some of those symptoms of the, whatever the mental health condition is. But I have witnessed firsthand where the the root cause, even when the root cause is like really obvious, when the root cause is trauma or grief, say, as an example, mm-hmm. where that is overlooked or where that where that is like not given as much weight as it probably should. Where it's like, well, if you just if you looked at the root cause of why this individual got here, and of course there's multiple factors that would lead to something like an eating disorder. But if you looked at at some of those root causes and gave the individual the the one-on-one time with a therapist or with a counselor and where it wasn't just about like pharmaceuticals and really kind of sterile forced treatment to me. And I'm not the expert, but that seems to me like it would be of more advantage to the patient that way. Yeah, I I totally agree, especially with this condition or any uh, eating disorder, but this one is particularly insidious, but I I mean, I don't have a lot of exposure to patients or even you know, friends or family who've who've uh, suffered from this condition. But from what I understand, I think it is maybe not only is it a part of the 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 cause, a part of the treatment, but it's probably like eighty to ninety percent of the motivating factors for this particular. I mean, there's different again, there's different uh, categories of anorexia, but it seems to be largely psychological and usually from some past event. So I don't think we're doing anything with, uh, I wonder why I know there's, there is treatment centers available and stuff like that, but, and again, there might be programs that exist like this, but maybe peer support would be something that would be useful here. Um, yep. you know, to, to, to talk to somebody who's been through a similar situation and has come to terms with it. Because I think that somebody who's in that spot probably is a lot like somebody who's deep into addiction and thinks it's a lost cause. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, Uh, I I need to see from someone, I don't trust this doctor over here who just forced a tube down my nose and made me stand on a scale. I don't trust this person over here. I don't like this psychiatrist trying to put me on a pill. But here's somebody my own age or maybe a little older who's who's kind of got some ideas that might be helpful just to kind of give you a chance of thinking, all right, maybe this condition can be sort of managed over time. 
And then that part of the puzzle perhaps should be addressed, like you said, more, uh, it should be of more relevance than yeah. the way we have it set up now. Yeah. I don't have much to, uh, to offer in the way of expertise on this conditions. The, the other thing that, again, back to what we were saying before, we seem to, in our system, pick and choose what we have sort of a, a moral, moral issue with. And morbid obesity is, is another thing that comes to mind where mm. I have witnessed certainly where people are treated with stigma and people are treated with judgment for their mor morbid obesity, but where they're not certainly not detained under the mental health act. No, they're not where they are not, you know, forcibly made to see a psychiatrist and put on medications. I've seen really positive situations where they are supported given autonomy, given choice and, and said, we will kind of keep you here and help you get some physiotherapy and get some rehabilitation to the, so you can get to a weight where then you could go and seek, um, seek treatment, like a gastric bypass, for example. And just the, the, the treatment is obviously different than that of, uh, of something like anorexia or bulimia, but there's also a vast difference in how much autonomy and choice the individual is given. And I can't yeah. help but think that we're kind of making that again, we seem to be okay with people assuming long-term risk of death, but yeah. we're not okay with like a much shorter term. And now in our province, like we've like, you look at the morbid obesity or cigarette smoking or alcohol, where it's going to potentially kill you over many, many years. Now we're looking at anorexia where it could kill you over this amount of time. And now we're looking at the toxic drug crisis where it could kill you in an instant and yeah. now we're really not okay with it and i just think yeah. oh like eh, why that's are we a, making like we're making a funny distinction there that's a really good point with the the obesity one because it it's much more similar to drug addiction or using drugs to cope right i mean there's yes even the even the parts of the brain that are involved are very similar and i was just listening to a a podcast yesterday the day before and they're just on the verge in the States of they're just under 50% of their population, slightly just under, but it's going to be in the next year or so. 50% of their population will be morbidly obese. I mean, that is wild. Was it morbid or was it obese? Well, regardless, it doesn't matter. I, I sure. maybe it's maybe it's obese, maybe it's not morbidly obese. I can't remember what the BMI difference is, and it doesn't matter. No. You get the same, uh, it's a times five multiplier, basically, or you have a vastly increased risk of all your cardiovascular stuff, stroke, heart attack. And uh, that's not even mentioning the stuff it does to your, uh, your frame down the line. But yeah, we, not only do we not intercede, but it's, it's, it's treated so carefully. Many physicians will, there, there's some who are pretty blunt about it, but others are, they, they skirt around it. If you look at uh, the risk factors for somebody who's who's been obese for a long time and they're getting into their 40s, 50s, are really starting to get into the red zone as far as risk of heart attack and stroke and all that's concerned, the, the weight's not coming off. We don't seem to, like you said, step in and nobody is demanding that those people, you know, we're not forcing them to take stimulants or fat blockers or forcing them to exercise. We're not demanding that they get a gastric bypass or have a procedure to to slow them down in fact it's still kind of part of our culture right so why and i guess maybe again it's a 
it's the way that we're raised and it's the way our culture looks at things. Because if we explained or if everybody understood the risk factors properly, then it would make no sense. Why would you have, like cannabis would be the the biggest flaw here, the biggest heuristical error. Why in the hell would cannabis not be legal, but it's okay to be super obese and alcohol is fine. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. That, that, that makes, there's no numbers that line up even close as far as if you're concerned about safety, mental health, everything. I mean, anxiety, depression, all those things are higher for the person who's uh, drinking too much and eating too much. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting one for sure. And then the chronological point you make, is it just because of how much of a splash it makes? It's hard for politicians. They can't hide the toxic drug crisis. They're doing a pretty good job of trying, but it, it's pretty in, like everybody, I think at this point, at least knows somebody who's who's died. It's like, uh, and and yeah, I don't know. Maybe that plays a big role in it. Yeah. And as does, and I, I won't go on, a, I could go on a real tangent about it, but as does our society's crippling fear of death. Yes. Yes. That's another <laughs> thing I was recently discussing. What in the hell is with this? Go ahead. Sorry. I'm- oh, no, no. It, just that. It, what yeah. I don't have an answer to what is with it, but we are paralyzed with fear over death. Yeah. And I think, I think our healthcare system lives in that kind of fear too. And the shorter term, or the, the the sooner that that could come, the scarier that it is. Yeah, and we we definitely tend to make more knee jerk reactions. And our ICUs, I think, are are. This is no criticism of of intensive care. It is an essential part of our healthcare system. But I think that there are so many daily circumstances there that are emblematic of our society's crippling fear of death. Mm-hmm. And we could do a whole other episode on it because it's, it's like such a big one. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a part a- of the conversation. It is a part of the conversation and it definitely plays in here. The other one, the other uh, part of this that we kind of tied in was the uh, the religious aspect of it, where some some culture, some religions don't allow blood transfusions. And I thought that kind of, you know, that's, that's an, another perspective on the same thing. And I believe that, uh, I think I can remember when I was a kid, it was challenged a couple of times or something. And yep. in the end, uh, like currently, I believe it's perfectly fine to uh, refuse a blood transfusion, correct? Yep. Yeah. Have you had patients do that? I have. And I've seen that with, with uh, again, with minors as well, with someone who's below the age of consent where they have refused. Wow. What yeah. an interesting situation there, eh? Now you got somebody who's, they're not old enough to make important decisions like buying alcohol or cigarettes or gambling, but it's okay for them to decide not to get a a life-saving, possibly life-saving procedure based on uh, a belief system. That's interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's a, that's again, a, a really, a really tough one. And, and so just like even going back to the idea of an adult making that decision, we have accepted that that is okay for them to make that decision. Um, yes, which I agree with. Same, same. Mm-hmm. Again, based on their faith, but the the use of the word faith needs to be argued there too, because what someone values, what someone holds dear to them uh, in one circumstance versus the individual down the hall who holds another whole other set of values dear mm-hmm. based on all of their life circumstances and and how they were raised and whatever it is that they believe in or their relationship with the universe 
they aren't able to sort of be their own decision maker. They aren't able to keep their autonomy. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. And what if you got really uh, crazy and decided that uh, all of a sudden, what if we had a, a religion that was tied into the use of opiates, say, as part of their, don't know if this is, I mean, maybe you could say in Afghanistan or Pakistan, India, a, a little bit, I think they have, they certainly have cultural tie-ins. I, I don't know if it goes as far as religious, you know, if it's involved in religious ceremonies, of course, other drugs are, but what if that was part of the part of the puzzle they were or part of the problem they were facing politically was that uh, some people were claiming it's their god-given right to use every thursday or something yeah. and and regardless of the legal status you know i mean it it really gets into uh into some bizarre territory there for sure when you bring religion into it it does and again i think the medical system is probably and quite understandably uncomfortable with it because there's certainly, um, I know that there are cases that have gone to court and have been big, you know, big precedent setting cases. And I would imagine that any healthcare professional or physician would want to kind of not get into challenging that or, or setting a new, a new precedent for it. But I don't know. It, um, well, we do have pharmacists who won't, won't dispense like morning after pills. In our, in our province. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's their right, as long as there's another pharmacy within reasonable distance. Like, that's how they've uh, accommodated that, right? So if you're, the, if you're the only pharmacy in town and you have a religious belief that strictly prohibits that medication being used, you still have to give it out according to the way the, <laughs> those rules are wow. set up. <laughs> <laughs> Like you see how arbitrary and bizarre it gets, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's fascinating. A, it is. And it's a difficult one to understand. Right. 